judge through eyes of mercy. I long to choose with holy wisdom and walk down paths of peace, taking love to every soul in me. Donahue, welcome to another episode of the Legacy Podcast, helping you build your legacy. This episode is number 250, and this is going to be a recording of a message that I preached recently to the church in which I pastor, Mount Tabor Baptist Church, from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We're beginning to work through a series in 2 Peter, or at least I'm, I'm finished with it now, but at the time I was uh, working through 2 Peter. And uh, so hopefully this should be a good series for you. And uh, we'll help you to build your spiritual legacy. And uh, if you'd like to take a look at the show notes and the um, outline and everything, you can do that under episode 250. Thanks for listening. Well, it's almost hunting season. For those of us who are hunters, that is an exciting time. And I have been... uh, regularly looking out into the fields behind my house where I typically go hunting and seeing all kinds of deer and numerous turkey, and I'm excited about that. But the challenge with that is that when deer season comes, can't find them. (laughs) And I think that there is some kind of ingrained intelligence, some kind of knowledge in deer that when they realize that the season has changed and it follows upon them and there's more activity in the woods for them to go deeper in the woods. So that when it's time for me to go out hunting, I can't find them anywhere. And what used to be an everyday occurrence in our backfield, not so much. And it's interesting that there is this knowledge that they have to keep them out of danger. Well, I want to use that as an illustration because the very same thing is true for us Christians on a spiritual level. God has given us in his word the ability to have a certain level of knowledge that will keep us from the danger of false teaching. First Peter is a a letter that Paul or that Peter wrote to uh, warn those who he was writing to to keep from the dangers of false teachers outside the church. Second Peter primarily is written to address those who are within the church 
that are teaching unsound doctrine. They're teaching falsehoods. And he is giving instruction for the people to whom he is writing that gives them the kind of knowledge that they need so that they will not be led astray by false teaching. And so we're going to look at that today. How do we as Christians avoid false teachers that arise within the church? We must have a certain knowledge of the truth. Real quickly, Second Peter is divided into this understanding. We must have a certain knowledge of our salvation. We must have a certain knowledge about the truth of Scripture. We must have a certain knowledge about the truth of our adversaries. And we must have a truth and the knowledge of certain prophecies. And by doing that, we can gain a better understanding of what it is that we are to believe so that when we know uh, the opposite, when we know falsehood, we can compare the two and stand upon the truth. Today, then, we'll look at the first of these, knowledge of the truth about salvation. But first, I want to just give a little bit of introduction about the letter itself. It was written by the Apostle Peter, thus the name. Unless, of course, you are one of those who are critical about what the scriptures seem to indicate. And then you'll say that this was a forgery by some later author that said that they were really Peter. And you know, I'm not even getting into all that. But it, it was written sometime uh, before his death, obviously. You can't write it after his death. And uh, he, he wrote... Uh, probably in about 66, 67, something like that. He died at the end of 67 under the hand of Nero in, um, in Rome. And so he was writing from Rome, most likely. And uh, it does not say specifically, Second Peter, uh, who his audience was that he was writing to. But First Peter tells us that it was written to the pilgrims dispersed throughout Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia which are all areas within Asia Minor uh, in the day, which is now Turkey. And so they were on the, on the, uh, the little western edge of the, um, the nation, which is now called Turkey. He was writing to that group of people and the pilgrims dispersed among that was the Christians that were uh, around that area. So what truths do we need to know about salvation to keep us from the dangers of false teachers? Now, one thing I want to say by way of introduction to this message is that uh, this is going to be a little bit more difficult to follow than some of my messages. Sometimes I have a lot of illustrations, have a lot of stories, things like that. Uh, this one, not so much, because there's so much theology. I, I just mentioned as I was reading this that that first sentence is four verses long, and it's one sentence. And that's the kind of depth that we have here, even in these first 11 verses. And so, and you can see from the outline that you have in your bull insert that it's a little bit more extensive an outline than what I normally have. But uh, I want you to put on your thinking caps and try to stay along with me here as we go through. I'll try to do the best that I can in, in uh, breaking down these theological concepts and making sense of them. But they are important for us. And unless we understand these, you know, sometimes there are some who, who say, well, all I need is just the basics. Well, that's good if you want to stay at basics. But sometimes we need to move beyond the basics, and um, he provides that for us here. And that way we're able to discern the difference between uh, those who are preaching false gospel and those who are preaching the truth. So what two truths do we need to know? First of all, we need to know the truth about salvation with reference to divine grace. Divine grace. We see this in verses 1 through 4. And uh, there are three graces that he talks about here, three gifts, three things that God has given to his believers uh, with reference uh, to salvation. The first is faith. Look with me in verse one. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ 
to those who have obtained like precious faith. So even in his introduction here, he is speaking to those he is writing to about the faith that God has given to them. And he says that it is a like precious faith. The acquisition of this faith, faith I want you to notice, it says here in my translation, who have obtained like precious faith. That's really not the best translation. Some of you might have received like precious faith. That's actually a better translation. The idea is that something that uh, we did not acquire from within ourselves, but rather it is something that we have received. It is a word that is used for something that is uh, you cast lots for it and the choice is determined. And so here we have this faith is given to us by God out of his grace. That's why it is considered a divine grace. Faith is not something that we obtain through our works, but rather we receive it by God's grace. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. If you recall, we looked at Ephesians uh, just recently in our message through Ephesians chapter 2. Of course, it was early on, but it says this. tells us that it is by faith, but by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Did you know that your faith is a gift of God? It, it is, it is the, uh, the, the ability that God has given you to trust in him. That's a gift that he's given to you. Now, there are Bible teachers that tell you that faith is something that we can do within ourselves, something that we muster up within ourselves, or that somehow we are born with a measure of faith or something like that. And the idea is indeed that we are enemies of God when we are born. And unless God gives us faith, we will not believe. We acquire faith by receiving it from God as a gift. We do not pay for gifts. We do not earn gifts. We receive gifts. And the same thing is true with our faith. We have received the great gift of faith from God the Father. Notice what kind of faith this is. It says that it is like precious faith. It is indistinguishable from that that others may have. The word is actually one word in Greek, and it carries the idea of something that is of equal rank, position, honor, or standing in price or value. It was used in the ancient world for strangers and foreigners who were given equal citizenship within a city. And so the idea is that there is no distinction of classes within Christianity. There are those who believe and those who do not believe in the world. And those who believe all have the same like precious faith. And so it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The people of God in the covenant of grace all possess the same faith. <clears throat> it is like precious faith. We live in a world where there is a class system. You have the upper class, you have the lower class, you have the middle class. And that's... That's in the third world or that's in the first world where there's not as much distinction between the classes. You go to foreign countries, especially in third world or developing countries, and there's a greater difference between the classes. And uh, that's the world that we live in. But when it comes to our position with Christ, it is only categorized by those who have faith and those who do not have faith. And those who have faith have a like precious faith. It is the same faith for you and for me as long as we believe. No matter what state you are in economically, no matter what your racial profile, no matter what your gender or anything else, that matters little when it comes to faith. We have received like precious faith from God by his grace. Notice the result of this faith. We see this also 
in this verse, it says to those who obtain like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The idea is that the righteousness of God is applied to the believer through faith. This was the rallying cry of the Reformation by faith alone. This is the emphasis here, and all believers have an equal standing before God because they have imputed righteousness of Christ. It is imputed rather than infused. And I know those are kind of big words and complicated words, but they are important words. As Protestants, we believe that our salvation, our righteousness, is imputed to us by God. Whereas in Roman Catholic understanding... It is infused righteousness. As we exercise certain activities, he then infuses to them certain means of grace. And so we would, of course, hold to the concept that it is imputed righteousness. And we, of course, get this uh, from Romans chapter 4. And this is a, a lengthy segment of Scripture, but I want to read it because I think it is important for us. So Romans chapter 4 says this. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, justification and righteousness, by the way, are the same word. And so you can apply righteousness or justification here. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. You see, the context of this is just like it was in in Romans, that there is this idea that God has given by his divine grace. He has imputed to us righteousness. And so when he looks at us through faith, he doesn't look at us as sinners anymore. He looks at us through the righteousness of Christ. That's why it talks about in the scriptures that we are clothed with righteousness. Isn't that incredible? That, That we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Did you know that on the cross, not only did he forgive us our sins, but he also imputed to us, he clothed us in his righteousness. That's incredible. Now, how much righteousness does Christ have? Infinite righteousness. Now, here's a mathematical equation for you, like math, right? If you take something from infinity, what do you get? Infinity. Right? And so if Christ has infinite righteousness... And he applies righteousness to us. Did he lose any of his righteousness? He still has infinity and righteousness. And so he is able to apply his righteousness to each of us on the cross. Isn't that good news? And so he has imputed to us his righteousness. We cannot get the cart before the horse. We are not given faith because we are more righteous than someone else. Or we have somehow reached some plane of righteousness. 
Instead, we are made righteous through faith, and that is applied to us through the righteousness of Christ. There is no room for boasting. Your righteousness is only a result of God's imputation of his righteousness to you. Therefore, God is the one who deserves all the praise. I want you to notice, secondly, not only is there this faith, but there is this divine power that he has gifted to us as well. We see this in verses 2 and 3. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. We'll get back to that in a minute. And of Jesus Christ our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. Isn't that incredible? Notice the source of this power. It says that it is his power, his divine power. This is the power that brings light out of darkness, that brings life from the dead and has given us regeneration when we were dead in our sins. We, not live a, we do not live a godly life in our own power, but in his. Just as a piece of electronics has no power within it, but only when it is plugged in or charged up, it can function, so too we. We have no power within ourselves to live a righteous life. We have no power within ourselves to do anything of value before God. It is only by the power that he enables in us through his grace that we are able to serve him. Notice the object of this power, and that is us. It says, as his divine power has given to us. He's writing, of course, to Christians. Not everyone has this power, but only those uh, that are uh, believers in Christ are able to receive this kind of power. And he enables us to believe. And then it says that uh, this power is indeed a divine and powerful uh, thing for us. And then we notice also the results of this power. It is a sufficient power. Uh, We see this. Um, also in that verse, as divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, I think that is important because I think very often what happens is that, that we think that somehow we need to add something to what God has given to us so that we might be enabled to do his will. We don't need to add anything. He has given us his spirit. He has enabled us by his power, by his grace, by his divine activity in us. All that we need so that we might be able to live sufficiently and godly before him. We have all that we need to live a godly life through his divine power. There are no excuses saying that we need something more, that we can't quite do it. You know, there's this idea that, um, well, it's not so much an idea as much as it is an excuse that children say, I can't do that. You ever heard children do that at time? You know what that really means? They don't want to. They could do it if they wanted to, right? That, I mean, they do a lot of things that are a lot harder than that sometimes, but it's because they don't want to do it. They don't. Well, that's the same way. It's the only reason that we disobey God today, we don't want to. He has enabled us to live for him. He has given us the divine power necessary that we might live a godly life. There's no excuses. We can't say, oh, well, the devil made me do it. Yeah, well, you can overcome the devil. He says that there is no temptation common to man that he has not also given a way of escape. So that we might be able to be victorious in that. There's no excuses. To live godly means to live submissively and obediently to God. Just as the earth has everything necessary to sustain life. And it is the only planet uh, just the right distance from the sun. With just the right kind of atmosphere. With just the right kind of everything necessary to sustain life. So that is the way that God has worked with his people. He has given them everything necessary by his divine power to live 
the godly life and to live obediently. So we don't need to ask for anything. Notice the means by which this divine power is acquired. It says, as the divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. Through the knowledge of him. How often Peter refers to knowledge here. Uh, I mentioned that the whole book primarily is dealing with the knowledge that is necessary to avoid the dangers of the false teachers. Here we see the knowledge with reference to salvation. Verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 18, all talk about this knowledge that is necessary for us, for us to be able to acquire all that God has given to us. The word knowledge here is actually a strengthened form of the word, implying a deeper and more intimate knowledge. The Christian faith is not a blind leap, but is based upon objective, historical, revealed, and rational truth. It is to be understood and to be believed. Christians should be thinkers, using our minds. This is why it is told that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. When this knowledge is appropriate to the believer, it says that grace and peace will be multiplied. The knowledge God gives us is a divine grace in itself because he has graciously revealed himself to us in the words of the scriptures as well as in nature. Reminds me of Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 says that we're supposed to be transformed how? By the renewing. Of our minds. One thing that bothers me is when Christians say that um, they don't need doctrine, they just need the gospel. <laughs> well, what is the gospel but doctrine? <laughs> and so, certainly, we need to understand the scriptures. We have to come to a deeper knowledge of the truth, and the more of the knowledge of the truth that we have, the more of His divine power we're able to understand. And so, by that, we're able to live a more godly life. And so, the means of this power. Is the knowledge. But I want you to notice thirdly. The third grace that he has given to us. In the context of our salvation. Is the effectual calling. The effectual calling. We find this also in verse 3. It says as his divine power has given to us all things. That pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him. Who called us by glory and virtue. Well what is the effectual calling? says those who called us by glory and virtue. The Bible talks about several different kinds of calls. One is the general call or the external call. It is the call whereby we preach the gospel to all people. Just yesterday I was going door to door doing some evangelism, trying to share the gospel with people up and down Route 20. And I had the opportunity to share the gospel to many. I gave the general call. But it is only by the special grace of God that he works in the heart of somebody and calls them effectually, internally, that they're able to respond positively to that gospel. So we're supposed to give the call to everyone to come. But only those whom God has worked in such a way, giving them a divine knowledge, giving them an understanding, they then are able to come to his glory and to his virtue. I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism is the best explanation that we have of the definition of effectual call. It says the effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. In other words, it is the work of God that enables us to respond rightly to the general call to repentance and faith. Why do some believe upon hearing the gospel and others do not? 
because some only have the general call and not the special call or the effectual call. If you've responded to the gospel call, as I'm assuming you have here since you are worshiping with us this morning, then all glory goes to God because he has worked in you in the effectual call so that you might respond rightly to the general call. Notice the means of this effectual calling. It says the glory and virtue. Glory here can be compared to the rays of the sun that continue to shine in the midst of the darkness. And so the glory of God continues to shine in the midst of the darkness. And when we see his glory, when we see the rays of the sun, we're naturally drawn to the sun. Have you ever been um, in a season where it seems like it's raining all the time? Dreary and miserable. And then it stops raining and the sun comes out. What do you do? You go outside and you go, ah, the sun, isn't it great? We're naturally attracted to the sun when we've been in the darkness. And so that's the way it is. Through His glory, when, when our eyes are opened up and they're no longer blind, we see Him for who He is. Our natural response is to receive Him because He has revealed His glory and His virtue to us. The virtue here should be understood in this context as an energy or a way of mobilizing us and empowering us. The idea seems to be that it is the character of God that calls us to himself. Together, this indicates his natural and his moral attributes, the glory and the virtue that attracts us to him. It reminds me of the verse that says, The goodness of God leads men to repentance. There's no doubt about it that when our eyes are open, when he works in us by his divine grace, he shows himself to us in all of his glory and all of his virtue. What's our natural response? It's to come to him. And so he does that through the effectual call. Like a sunflower that turns in the direction of the sun. So we who have been born of God turn to God when his glory and his virtue shines upon us. Indeed, the glory and the virtue of God are irresistible to those who are effectually called. Notice the result of this great effectual call in verse 4. It says, by which have been given to us exceedingly and great and precious promises. Exceedingly great and precious promises. <clears throat> These great and precious promises are of abundant and eternal life with God. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Oh, if we could really understand what God has prepared for us in eternity, it would be incredible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of men the things which God has prepared for those who love him. If we could use our greatest of imagination and come up with the, the most ideal place, the most ideal situation for us to be with in eternity, it pales in comparison to what God has prepared for us who love him. And that's, that's the blessing that we have here. By this effectual call, he enables us to respond to him. And as we respond to him, he imputes to us his righteousness. We exercise our faith. And as a result of that, we've been given these great and precious promises, promises of eternal life. And then notice the goal of this divine calling. We see this also here in verse 4. By which he has given to us exceeding great and precious promises. Why? That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now this is not 
being partakers of the divine nature like some panentheists would say that we're all part of God and that we're all in unity with God. That's not what it's talking about here. What it's talking about here is that we're able to share in the glory of God for all eternity. When we're able to come before Him and we're able to dwell in the light of His glory and His grace, man, that's incredible. And we can be partakers of that. And not only that, but we have... That's the positive. The negative is that we've escaped... The corruption of the world through lust. That is that we are, we are not going to be sent to the lake of fire. We're not going to be judged like the world will be judged for our sins. But instead we'll be able to dwell in the presence of God for all eternity. So the first truth that we must know about our salvation to avoid the danger of false teachers is, oh my goodness, I'm out of time, is that uh, it is all of divine grace. There are some teachers in Christianity today that teach that we have uh, that we are saved by some effort of our own, that we can in some way contribute some merit to our salvation? Not so. What is the truth? The truth is that our faith is a gift from God, that the power to live the godly life, yes, even to choose God, is a gift from Him. The effectual call that brings us to Himself is a work of God's free grace in us. When we really get this, we'll do nothing but praise Him because we know that He's the one who deserves it all. Well, I'm going to try to venture into the next part. (laughs) Stay with me. The second major truth is that we need to know about our salvation is to avoid the danger of the false teachers is diligent growth. Diligent growth. We see this in verses 5 through 11. And the basis of this diligent growth is the divine grace we just talked about. We see this uh, in verse 5. It says, but also for this very reason. What was the very reason? The very reason that he's poured out his divine grace upon us. And so as a result of him pouring out his divine grace upon us, what is our response? What should we do? How does it affect us? That's what he's talking about here. And that is diligent growth. The Christian life and the sanctification is not motivated to get grace, but rather because grace came first. You know, the old question people ask, what came first, chicken or the egg? Well, you know, the answer to that is right. The chicken came first. God created everything, you know, and then the chicken laid the egg. That's the answer if you have that. But the question for Christians is, which came first, our works or God's grace? And that's an easy one, too. It's God's grace. And so it is evident here that um, for this very reason. But then notice the effort of this Christian growth. It says, but for this very reason, giving all diligence... Add to your faith, virtue, and so forth. This uh, word diligent here is used in verse 5 as well as in verse 10 in this passage. And it carries the idea of haste and care. All things have been given to us for our Christian growth. But that does not mean that the Christian is without the responsibility in the process of sanctification. When I think of this, I think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. He says... Do you not know that those who uh, run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for a prize is temperate in all things. Temperate means self-controlled, disciplined, right? Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Did you know that if you ask most athletes that are 
on the scale of professional or very, very competitive athletes, uh, they work through a great deal of pain every day. They just they fight through it because they're abusing their bodies in some way. You know, we're supposed to be temperate in all things. Well, a professional athlete is not temperate when it comes to exercise. They discipline their body and bring their bodies into subjection so that they might achieve the prize. I mean, I think the, the great illustration of this that I like to remember, and I, I don't know if I got the names right or the exact situation, but you'll recall it as soon as I mention it. That was a few years back during the gymnastics Olympics. And Terry Scruggs was, I think it was Terry Scruggs, she was about ready to jump on the, uh, or do the, the vault. And uh, she did the vault and she sprained her ankle really badly in the first one. And um, they were questionable whether or not she was going to be able to do the second vault. And if she didn't do the second vault, of course, the team was not going to be able to win. She runs down the platform, runs down the, the little lane, does the vault, sticks it one-footed. And then she hobbles off, and they win. She went through a great thing. She endured a lot of deals. She disciplined herself. Now, if me, I would have said, that's it, it's over. My leg, done, you know. I mean, these days, I, you know, I get kinks in my legs. I've been struggling with this knee problem recently. And, you know, I've gone to the chiropractor twice, and I just can't seem to, and I think I'm just going to have to get out running because it hurts too much when I run anymore, so now I'm trying to bike a little bit, you know. I've gotten to where now it's like, oh, a little pain. That's not, I'm backing off now. That's enough. But that's not what a professional athlete does. They push through it. And that's the model that is given for us as Christians. We need to be diligent in our service to God, in our Christian growth. We can't just say, oh, that's a little bit hard for me. I can't do that. Ah, oh, my time's too busy. I can't read the Bible in the mornings. Woo. No, I'd have to get up another 15 minutes early. Can't do that. No. We need to be diligent in our Christian growth. But notice the characters of this Christian growth. I'm going to just have to go over these very quickly here. But uh, the characters of this Christian growth are important. If I can find them. They're somewhere here. I've lost my notes. Okay, here we go. Um, in uh, verse uh, verse 5 it says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge. Now the, the word add here uh, in every place that it occurs carries this idea of not just adding a little bit. It's not just adding one to something. It is adding multiples. It is a, an extensive addition. And so the idea here says, don't just add a little bit of virtue to your faith. Don't just add a little bit of this to that. It's saying, add an abundance of this. Add as much as you possibly can of this. And so what does it say? Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. Now, I don't think we need to make too much of the order of these things because... Um, I think it is interesting, though, that it starts with faith and ends with love, just as it says in 1 Corinthians, great faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it is important that we understand what these are. Faith is belief or trust, confidence in the promises of God. Virtue, just as in Paul's day or in Peter's day, it would mean this heroic ability, heroic power, heroic energy. I think it's indicating here some power, some ability to be able to do great and mighty things. For the Lord, knowledge we've already looked at. This is the general word for knowledge, the idea of knowing things for God. And, of course, this comes from diligent study of the word of God. Self-control or temperance is the idea of 
of uh, controlling ourselves so that we're not induced to do things that are wrong. Perseverance carries the idea of continuing under a burden for a long time. It is uh, struggling and continuing to persevere through the struggle. And then godliness, we've already discussed in verse 3, to live godly means to submissively and obediently to God. Brotherly kindness carries the idea of a mutual sacrifice for one another. And love, of course, the Bible is full of the description of love and what it means to be a Christian. What is the result of this diligent growth? We see in verse 8 that it says that uh, it is usefulness and faithfulness. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when these things abound, when we are diligent, when we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth, it says that we will be useful and fruitful in ministry and in the glory of God. A Christian who is growing will be a useful Christian. When these and things are not present in the Christian life, there will be little distinction between the believer and the other and the unbeliever. And the Bible says you will know them by their fruit. This leads us to the second thing, and that is assurance of our salvation in verses 9 through 11. It says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. How do you make your call and election sure? By being diligent in your growth. You see, there is, there is this <clears throat> truth that we can hold to that once that we are saved, we are saved for sure. But when we are living in sin, when we're not growing in grace, we have no assurance that we're really saved. And it's designed to be that way. We are to have security in the confidence that what he says is true and that we will persevere to the end. But when we're not persevering to the end, should we have that confidence? No. And so we lose that assurance, it says in verses 9 through 11. Verse 11, For so as an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the anticipation that we have. The promise of eternal life. Entrance, abundantly, everlasting. This is our hope. The hope becomes even more anticipated as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the truth. The outworking of our salvation is diligent growth. There are teachers that, if there are teachings out there that says that if someone is professing Christ and never grows in their faith, that they're still right with God. Others teach that Christian growth is all the work of man's effort. Neither one is right. We have to understand that it is only a result of God's divine grace working in us that we are able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But if we don't work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the anticipation is He's never worked in us in divine grace. You see how they work hand in hand? They go together perfectly well. So what is the truth that we should hold on to? The basis for our Christian growth is God's grace. The effort that goes into the Christian growth should be diligent. The characteristics expressed in this Christian growth are all-encompassing, and the result of the Christian growth are assurance of eternal life. We see the principle in verse 11 expressed that uh, Paul expresses it this way in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if we stop there, we would say, see, salvation is based upon works. But then what does he say? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, 
for his good pleasure. You see how they're combined together, working out the, the whole thing as he has designed it? We've been studying Matthew in Sunday school class, and something that keeps coming up over and over again. In fact, it was referenced even today, and that is uh, how much the disciples didn't seem to get it. And we looked at Peter, and one moment uh, Jesus is saying, Peter, on you, on, on the rock, you're the rock, and upon the rock, I'll build my church. And then not a half a chapter next, he looks at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the things of God in mind. Well, the good news is Peter got it. He was able to express it to us here in this letter by the grace of God to communicate to us the importance of who Jesus is, the divine nature working in us to accomplish our salvation and to give us the diligence so that we might be able to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. If you think that uh, you can come to God without his enabling, you're greatly mistaken. Come to him, yes. Come, but know that you only come because of his divine grace working in you. This way he gets all the glory. What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? One day we'll wither away And to this world we'll have to say goodbye But just like the plant that withers away We will leave many seeds behind If today you lost your life What would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you do to change your